0: Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the speaking God, and we thank you that you speak to us for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your name and for the sake of our own good. And we pray this evening that we would listen to your word uh, and live in light of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, what, would the, the uh, what, you, what would you say is the greatest danger to the Christian life? What would you say is the greatest danger? If I can make it a bit more personal to your Christian life. And I actually want you to think about this. You see, what do you think is the greatest danger to your Christian life? If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you are a Christian as you run the race that is this Christian life, what is the greatest danger that you might run into? What is the most likely thing to cause you to stumble, to hit a wall, to collapse in a heap and fail to finish? The race. I really want you to think about it, and as you do, my guess is that most of us are thinking of particular struggles or uh, particular particular sins that we have in our Christian lives. Um, maybe your own struggle is with worldliness. You want to succeed. Uh, you're tempted to acquire more and more of this world. You know that you give of yourself and your time too easily to careerism or materialism or pride, and you know being the top dog. Or perhaps your struggles are around fleshly, sinful desires, the lust of your eyes, the unhelpful sexual desire, the self-gratification of experience and self-pleasure in in whichever way that self-pleasure might express itself. Or maybe, for you, it's doubt. There is a a cloud that comes and goes in your Christian life and you begin to look at others around you and and the non-Christians in your world and you think, am I a fool? Have I made a mistake? Have I got this wrong? Am I wasting my life in the service of Christ? And all those things, they are real dangers in our Christian lives. And they are of sin, and they are not good for us, and they are not good for our world. But none of those things are the greatest of dangers to the Christian life. You see, as we come to 1 Kings 11 and we hear about the spectacular fall of King Solomon, and as we try to work out why is it that Solomon fell, well, we might be tempted to think that Solomon's problem was his womanizing problem. And uh, he certainly did have a problem in that area with, with all the many wives that he had. Or we might be tempted to think, well, Solomon's problem was with his worldliness and with his greed. And again, he certainly had this excess wealth problem. And we might even think that Solomon's problem was a horse problem. And you might think, okay, what's Mike talking about? Is he a little little bit mad? But we'll see that, that Solomon's acquired horses was a problem. But none of those things capture the heart of Solomon's spectacular fall. No, at the heart of his problem was a heart problem. You see, the heart of his problem was a divided heart. And that is the greatest danger to all who call themselves followers of Jesus. You see, the greatest danger for the confessing Christian is a heart that is divided before God. Is a heart that says its love is for Jesus only as Lord and King. But actually, Jesus is only one of the loves of our hearts. And as we look at 1 Kings 11 today, we'll see that this is an issue of the first commandment. See, this is a greatest commandment issue Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the greatest and most important command, Jesus says. But as we'll see, Solomon's heart, Solomon's love, was divided. And so make sure you've got your outline there in front of you. We're at point number one, a heart divided. And uh, even more importantly than your outline, make sure you have your Bible there. So look with me now at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Kings Chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations that the Lord had told the Israelites about do not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn you away from me to their gods. Solomon was deeply attached to these women and loved them. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. And there's no doubt that there is a gear shift, even as, as Troy mentioned, uh, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, so far, 1 Kings, especially for the last few chapters, it's been overwhelmingly positive. We've seen the great promises of God being fulfilled. Israel is in the land, finally. Israel is as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The nations, as we saw with the Queen of Sheba, are coming to Israel just like God had promised. The son of David, Solomon, the, the, the promised king of God, is ruler over his people. And all the promises of God seem fulfilled. All seem so good and so great until we read what we just read in verse 3. That Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. And in a moment, we'll look at, uh, at the detestable things that Solomon did at, at, as part of his spectacular fall. But I want to show you first how the biggest and greatest problem, again, was his heart. And to do that, I want to go back to 1 Kings chapter 2. Because uh, King David's parting words to his son were all about his heart. And so 1 Kings chapter 2, it's up on the screen. It says this, At the time, as the time approached for David to die... He instructed his son Solomon. He said this. He said, As for me, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong and be courageous like a man and keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes, commands, ordinances and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses so that you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn and so that the Lord will carry out his promise that he made to me If your sons are careful to walk faithfully before me with their whole mind and their heart, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And so what did King David said? He said, what are you to do, Solomon, my son, as king of Israel? Be faithful. Be faithful to your God. Give your whole mind and your whole heart to the Lord your God. And it wasn't just David's parting words as as he died to his son Solomon about his heart. It was also God's direct words to Solomon. And we saw that back in 1 Kings chapter 9, just after Solomon built the temple. So again, up on the screen, The Lord had said to him, to Solomon, As for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked, with a heart of integrity and in what is right, doing everything I have commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But Solomon failed to give his heart wholly to God. And back in 1 Kings chapter 3, we read, Solomon loved the Lord. And here, 1 Kings chapter 11, what do we read? Verse 1, Solomon loved many foreign women. And what do we read at the end of verse 4? Solomon was not completely devoted to Yahweh his God as his father David had been. And uh, the Holman translation uh, lets us down a little bit here because it's literally Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. And this is why this is a heart issue for Solomon and not simply a committing of sin issue. Because if you remember King David, he had major flaws. Major flaws. Do you remember? He, he too had a womanizing problem. He took many wives for himself when God said, don't. And not only did he take many wives for himself, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And, uh, and he, he, he did that when he should have been out to war with his army, fighting the wars of God. And if all that wasn't bad enough, what did King David do? Well, King David had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. And yet, what do we read throughout the Scriptures? What do we read over and over again? King David's heart was wholly true to God. Yes, he messed up. Yes, he sinned big time. Yes, what King David did was evil and wicked and indefensible. And yet... His heart was wholly devoted to God, even in his failings. He repented and God forgave him, which again reminds us that no one is ever beyond forgiveness and there is no greater mercy than that of God's. But my point is, the difference between Solomon and David is not the sins they commit. See, they are both miserable sinners, but the difference was their hearts. See, David's heart was wholly devoted to God, even in his failings. But Solomon's was not. His heart was divided. And before we go on to see where this divided heart of Solomon leads, it's worth noting that what God wants from us is our hearts. He he wants hearts that are fully and wholly for him. And we know this. The truth is, we all sin. And the truth is, we will all sin and we will all fail. Because perfection and sinlessness is not a this creation reality. That is a next creation, a new creation, an eternal life reality. See, for the follower of Jesus, God does not demand perfect hearts from us because we can't do perfect in this creation. That's why Jesus died once for all for our forgiveness, sins past and present and future, paid for in the death of Christ. And so not perfect hearts, we can't do that. But undivided hearts. That's what God wants. He wants hearts that love Him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is what our God demands of us. And the closest example I can give is a child and their parents. Because kids, and we all know this, we were all kids at one point, but kids at times disobey their parents. They just do, they fail to heed to heed the good warnings of their parents. In their temptations, they mess up and they go against mum and dad and they fail to trust that mum and dad knows and wants what is best for them. But that doesn't mean that they don't love their mum and dad. That doesn't mean their hearts aren't against their parents. Their hearts are full of love for their parents, even in their failings. See, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the greatest and most important command. And that is what God wants from all of us, from every single human being whom he has made in his image. He wants undivided hearts that love him and are for him. Love the Lord your God. But that is where Solomon failed. And it's, uh, it's very interesting to, to reread the earlier chapters of 1 Kings, and I encourage you to do that through the week. Uh, reread uh, the, the chapters uh, of 1 Kings in light of chapter 11. And as you do, you'll see that throughout those chapters, there are hints of Solomon's fall. Uh, there are hints that Solomon's heart is not holy for God. There are hints that Solomon is not the great promised king of God, that there must be another king who is yet to come. But perhaps uh, the key scriptural background for Solomon's fall is Deuteronomy chapter 17. And uh, this is one of those chapters that really is, is beautiful and just shows how the whole Bible fits together. And just shows how God's word is trustworthy because God is faithful in his word. He's knowledgeable in his word that he gives up. But it's, uh, it's up on the screen. And this is what God's instruction to the future kings of Israel was. So God declared, Deuteronomy 17, God said, He, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. And he, the king, must not acquire many wives for himself. Why? So that his heart won't go astray. And he, the king, must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it is to remain with him, the king, and he is to read from it all the days of his life. Why? So that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God. And if you just run your eyes down for a moment back to uh, the end of 1 Kings chapter 10. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, and if you look at verse 25, just have a look. See, what do we read? We read the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. And then look at chapter 10, verse 21. All of Solomon's cups and utensils were made of gold. That is all the things in his house. There was no silver among Solomon's cups and utensils since silver was considered as nothing. You see? Strike one from, Deut- from Deuteronomy. The king must not acquire large amounts of silvers and gold for himself, but Solomon did. It was all around him in his household. Then look down at verse 26, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And look at verse 28. Solomon's horses were imported from where? From Egypt. And you thought I was uh, mad mentioning Solomon and his horses. But God said, don't go back to Egypt. Don't, Don't go back and acquire horses from that slavery from which you once came. So strike two from Deuteronomy. And of course, back to chapter 11 now. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. See, God said, do not acquire many wives for yourself. Well... Strike three. And how he could have so many wives and concubines, uh, I do not know. He, he obviously had a problem. Uh, and many of those wives uh, would have been for political alliances and for treaties between nations. But again, just a sheer number. And, and the concubines show how Solomon had a serious problem here. Uh, I just don't know how he could have survived with so many mother-in-laws. Of course, unless uh, his mother in laws was as lovely as my mother-in-law, just in case she's listening. But uh, it's not just Deuteronomy 17. And again, just remember from that reading, Deuteronomy 17 itself said that the king should write down these things. He should write it down and keep it with him and read these instructions all the days of his life. But it's not just Deuteronomy 17. It's all the other ways that you can see that Solomon failed to keep the commands and statutes of his God. And we've seen already how David instructed him his father and he ignored that. We've seen how I saw how God himself warned Solomon and said keep my word and well Solomon ignored that. But then look at God's word quoted in verse 2 of chapter 11. See chapter 11 verse 2 what did God command and what had God already commanded and what is repeated there? God had said, don't intermarry with the nations around you. Why? Not because of racism, but because they will turn your heart towards their gods. And what did Solomon do? Well, he ignored the word of God. He married women of Moab and Ammon and Edom and Sidon and Hittite, let alone the daughter of Pharaoh. See, God said, don't go back to Egypt for horses. And what does Solomon do? He goes back to get himself a wife. And the result of all this? Well, in his sin, these women turned Solomon's heart away from the Lord, just like God had warned. And then you read verse 5. What did Solomon do? Well, he followed the gods of Ashtoreth and Milcom. And verse 7, Chemosh. And the bit I want us to notice is verse 4. Because it's not as though you know, Solomon woke up the day after he'd built the temple to Yahweh, the temple of God to Yahweh, and thought, great, temple of Yahweh, done. Now, time to start building for the other gods. I'm going to build for Asherah and Milcom and Chemosh. Now look at verse 4. Chapter 11, verse 4, it's when Solomon was old that his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh, his God. And so this wasn't something that just happened overnight for Solomon. This was a slowly, slowly thing that eventually led to Solomon worshipping other gods. And again, we don't have time, but if you reread the earlier chapters of 1 Kings, you would see that that fall had been coming from the beginning. Solomon's heart was divided. He wasn't completely devoted to Yahweh. And because he wasn't completely devoted and because his heart was divided, he didn't completely trust the word of Yahweh. And while Solomon never completely rejects Yahweh, just note that he still worships Yahweh. He just worships the other gods as well. He doesn't reject Yahweh, but compromise after compromise led to this point where Solomon really has become a pagan, worshipping multiple gods. And the consequences become very clear. So, look at verse 9, chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And so, the consequence is the rights and justified anger of God. And God was right to be angry. He had done everything for Solomon, He had given everything. To solomon god had appeared to solomon not only once but twice to instruct him and twice to warn him and yet solomon turned his heart away from god and i don't know what this meant for solomon's eternal life uh, the bible never tells us uh, we don't know if he repented uh, that there, there's certainly no sign of him repenting before his death at the end of this chapter Uh, But perhaps if if Solomon did write the book of Ecclesiastes, many think he did. I think he probably did write Ecclesiastes. And if it was written after this event, well then maybe he did repent. You see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this repentance from from the teacher in that book. But ultimately, we just don't know. You see, at best, the consequence for Solomon is great shame before his God, for his apostasy, and for his pagan worshipping. At worst, Solomon's divided heart leads to a life of eternal damnation. And the consequence, sadly, is not just for Solomon. It's also for Israel. You see, they too cop the consequences of Solomon's action. And uh, you'll need to read the rest of the chapter for yourself. But what God does is he declares that the kingdom of Israel will now be torn in two. It will no longer be what it has been, which is exactly what God had warned Solomon about in chapter 9. And you see in the way that the kingdom's torn in two that actually God does what he says he would do. He, his word is always faithful and true. And as you keep reading chapter 11, what you see is this reversal of the rest from his enemies that God had given to Solomon. And you see that God raises up enemies in the south from Edom. And God raises up enemies in, in the north from Damascus. And you see God raises up enemies from within with Jeroboam. And we'll hear a lot about King Jeroboam in the coming chapters. Or like my kids like to affectionately call him, Jelly Bottom, not Jeroboam. And his, his arch enemy is a Reverse Bottom, not Rehoboam. And we'll meet them later on. But you see, Solomon's divided heart leads to the divided kingdom. That's what happens. And this is it for the kingdom of Israel. It is never the same again after this moment. It's a horrible chapter. It's a sad chapter. And it leaves us thinking, if we didn't know the rest of the story, it leaves us thinking, well, what of the promises of God? See, what of the the forever king that God had promised? It's certainly not Solomon. And what of the kingdom that God had promised, the glorious kingdom of God's people? And of course, we know where we stand today, that God's plan was always greater than Solomon. It was always greater than Israel. It was always greater than an earthly king and some earthly kingdom. And I'm so glad that we read Philippians chapter 2 today. It wasn't planned that way to fit with the sermon today. But I'm so glad we read it because there we see the great plan of God in Jesus, his son. You see... God's king was to be a servant of God's people. He was to rule as God's king for God's people. And he was to be a model of an undivided heart in worship of God. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 2. We see the king of all the universe, the one for whom and through whom all things were created. And what did this king do? This glorious king? Well, he left his position of glory to become one of his creatures, to serve the ones that he had made and created. And as the great king came to serve, did he come as some great earthly king? Was he born into a palace of of Solomon? Was he born into privilege and a royal family with great wealth and political might? No, he was born in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals, into a lowly family that had no status. He took the form of a servant and a slave. And even though Jesus was and is the perfect obedient king, deserving of all earthly praise and all earthly wealth, did he take a position of wealth? Did he live in prosperity to give his heart to the loves of this world, even though Satan tempted him to? No. He served his people as king by dying for his people. He obeyed his Father in heaven to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such was his undivided heart to God the Father. Such was his love for us in saving us from the consequences of our sin. And now Jesus rightly sits exalted above every name with every knee to bow, not only on earth like some earthly Solomon king, but every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see... God's king was always to serve God's people. And he was always to model this undivided love for God. But it wasn't until Jesus that that king finally came. And brothers and sisters, praise God that he did. Otherwise, we would never know the kingdom of God. And we would never know the forgiveness of God that only comes from God's true king. And so what are the promises of God? God. You know, what of the forever king and the kingdom that God had promised? Well, it's all there in Jesus, just as God said that he would do. And even more glorious than we could ever could have imagined. And again, if you read the rest of chapter 11, you see that God promises that the line of Judah, the line of David, the promise of David will continue. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus our Lord. Praise God. But I want to finish with two practical lessons for our own hearts. And the first is, a heart that love, that loves God guards what it loves. And again, that was the problem for Solomon. You see, his heart was divided before God, and so he let other loves come in and corrupt his heart. And there are some very practical issues that come up in this passage. For one, when God declares to Israel, do not intermarry with the nations around you, because if you do, they will steal your hearts away towards their pagan gods. Well, Solomon should have listened to God. He should have guarded his heart. Instead, he chose to love foreign women. And the cost, as we've seen, was not only for Solomon's heart, but for Israel. And from this point on, Israel continually loved pagan gods. So much so that when you get to Nehemiah chapter 13, even the children of Israel, they don't even speak Hebrew anymore. They don't even speak the, the language of Israel anymore. They speak the language of the pagan gods, of Ashdod. And so how can they hear God speak if they can't even understand Hebrew? They can't even read the word of God for themselves. And some people have made this entire chapter about marrying uh, or, or dating uh, non-believers. And I think that's a mistake. That, that is not the main point of this chapter. But this does teach us something about marriage. It does teach us something about putting ourselves in a situation where our hearts and our love might be divided. Where where other loves, other than love for God, might lead and corrupt our hearts away from God. And Solomon's problem was part of his heart being given away to these women who did not know Yahweh the way he did, who did not worship Yahweh. But Solomon's problem was bigger than that because it wasn't just his womanizing and his foreign wives, it was his love for his wealth. It was his love for political dominance. It was his love for the size of his army and the size of his military force, which is a problem with the horses. It was his self-made security. See, God does not want a part of our hearts. And God does not want room in our hearts. He wants all of our hearts. He wants a love decidedly for him. And so we need to listen to God when he warns us against the love for this world and the love of money and the love of self and the love for anything which God warns us, don't do that. Trust me. Trust my word. Do not love that. So that's the first thing we learn. We need to guard our hearts against those things that God tells us. Do not love that. It will not be good for you. But, like I said at the very beginning, the biggest danger we face in the Christian life is not those sins which we struggle most with. Yes, we need to put to death those sins. And yes, they are not good for us and they're not good for the world around us. And we we would do well to keep struggling and putting those things off and and getting rid of them. But the biggest danger for us is the biggest danger for Solomon. It's this issue of of a divided heart. And this is where we need to realize that we, in our sin, are very much like Solomon. And we are very much like King David. We all sin. We all need a saviour. We all desperately needed Jesus to come and be the promised king to to save us from that right anger of God against our sin. And so we need to be careful in being too hard on Solomon. It's so easy to read this chapter and just think of Solomon as hopeless. But we are just like him in our weakness. But we should be nothing like him when it comes to his divided heart. We need to be undivided in our love for God. And if we want to be undivided, well, then the remedy is look to Jesus. Uh, Over the last week or so, I've been uh, reading a book on John Newton. Uh, If you don't know who he is, Newton is the man who wrote uh, the very famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And uh, Newton, he, he made his whole life about fixing his eyes on Christ, fixing his eyes on Jesus. And it wasn't easy. He made it his daily aim to look to Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to hear him and speak and pray to his Lord. And it was hard, and he understood the struggle of this earthly Christian life so well. He once wrote this. it's up on the screen. He said, "When we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, unbelief places a veil before our sight, and worldly mindedness draws our eyes another way." a desire to be something we are not, or possess something we have not, or do something we should not. Some vain hope or fear or delight comes in like a black cloud when we hide our eyes from our beloved Jesus. But then Newton also writes this, again, up on the screen. He said, How wonderful are the effects when a crucified, glorious Savior is presented to the eye of faith. This sight of Jesus destroys the love of sin, heals the wounds of guilt, softens the hard heart, and fills the soul with peace, life, and joy. If we could see Jesus more, we should look less at other things. In other words, what is the remedy against a divided heart? What is the remedy? It's look to Jesus. It's fix your eyes upon him. It's the words of Hebrews chapter 12, which our many parents in our morning church have been doing it with their kids. It's, if we are to finish that race that is the Christian life, we are to run with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. And so brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on the word of God. On Jesus, the promised King. Look to him. Consider him daily consider him, every day, love the Lord your God with all your heart, work at it, persevere in it, endure in it. And as we do, even in our daily failings, we will have hearts that are completely devoted to God. Because if we keep looking at Jesus, how can we not? And God promises then to keep us to the end. And he will do it, because that is his promise. Amen.